Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is that we overestimate what we can do in one year and we underestimate what we can do in 10 years. So if you look back on yourself 10 years ago and what you've done since, you'll probably be extremely impressed by the amount of things that you've done, the amount of personal and professional growth you've had. And I think that for me, I catch myself moving goalposts for myself because I am an ambitious person. But what I try to do now is not devalue where the goalposts were before or fear that the next challenge is going to happen just because I already achieved the last one. Um, and we are in a culture now where, you know, we tend to compare ourselves because we see everyone's highlight reels. I think it's important to put that in the context of what you've already achieved to this point today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors, the podcast where I bring in fascinating people from my world, talk about life, data science, sports analytics, content creation, and much, much more. I'm your host, Ken G. If you haven't already, we'd greatly appreciate it if you gave us a rating and followed the show. It helps us to continue to bring in incredible guests. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Stephanie Wong. Stephanie is a three-time Webby award-winning head of developer engagement. She's a global keynote speaker, an engineer, and content creator with a mission to blend storytelling and technology to inspire developers. She's created hundreds of pieces of content, including the Google Cloud YouTube series, Networking End-to-End, Season of Scale, and Discovering Data Centers, and is the host of the weekly Google Cloud podcast. Before Google, she helped businesses implement cloud technologies at Oracle. Born and raised in San Francisco, Stephanie is active in her community, supporting women in tech and mentoring students. She's a former pageant queen, a hip-hop dancer, and has had an unhealthy obsession with dogs. You can find her online at Wong. And in this episode, we learn about how Stephanie was able to create her own unique role at the intersection of her interests, how she manages imposter syndrome with the pancake principle, and we discuss how seemingly unrelated experiences like pageants can improve your value at work. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you'll enjoy it too. So Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast. Um, I'm really happy we got, we got introduced by, by a mutual friend. And you have such an interesting background, sort of designing your own role, working at Google, and and really uh, expanding on your own your own interest and and turning that into a career. So again, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to dive into to learning a bit more about your story. Yeah, no, I'm so excited to be here. I've seen your work, and to get introduced to you was just such a great uh, happenstance thing, and uh, it's really an honor to be on the show today. Amazing. Well. Out of probably most of the people that I've interviewed, I consider you like a pro at interviewing. I've watched a lot of everything. No pressure, of course. <laughs> but I, you know, I've seen you giving interviews. I've, I've seen you being interviewed. Uh, and it's awesome to see how you've been able to integrate that again into your career. So for a little bit more background, just to help people understand and get to know you a little bit better, I always like to ask how you first got interested in technology and sort of like the the domain we're in. Was it something that happened overnight? Was it one pivotal moment that sparked that? Or was it more of a slow progression over time? Well, I've always been interested in consumer technology and getting my hands on technology, but I never expected to work in technology. I wouldn't say that I uh, you know, turned my head away from it, but I definitely didn't expect to be in the type of role that I'm in today. Um, growing up, you know, always had my hands on a computer. I, uh, you know, game consoles my whole life. I got the first iPhone in high school at, at some point. Um, but it wasn't until college that I decided to get into a minor called digital humanities, 
And it was a good exposure to technology and to learn about information systems and content management systems, but it wasn't as intense as, let's say, computer engineering or computer science. That was perfect for me, though, because I didn't want to commit fully to that. I was actually a communication studies major. And so DH gave me a great introduction to learning about how technology fits into learning about humanities, literature, uh, language, um, current events. And so I did my research apprentice about how current events were being portrayed in social media and how that might influence actual broadcast media and the narratives they like to tell about current events. Um, So I did some analytics work there. And so when I first started... um, you know, doing job interviews, I went to the career fairs and there were kind of tech companies in LA area and the Bay coming over. And so I just sort of applied to anything that I thought I could be in. And um, when I got the role at Oracle out of school, it was for sales engineering. I had no idea what sales engineers did, nor what enterprise technology was at the time. So it was just me getting thrown into tech more or less, and having to learn concepts and the work environment all in one go on the job. That's amazing. I think something that might be useful, I don't think we've talked about sales engineers at all on this podcast before. Could you tell me a little bit about what that position entails? I know I have a couple of friends that are sales engineers, and I know they make a lot of money, but I really don't know what they do more specifically. I think that would help me as well as uh, any of the listeners. Yeah, so they are a part of the sales team, but you can think of them as the technical counterpart to the sales uh, representative. And so they are really a liaison between um, the company and the technical buyer, if you will, at your customer. So, you know, I would be the person explaining the tech stack or the product and how that product could fit into the customer's landscape. Um, And we would do workshops, demos. We were basically the product experts. And the sales representative would work really closely with us to drive forward that business and maintain the relationship more so. Amazing. And so that role is very much focused on like the implementation. Not I, I would assume you have to understand a little bit of what goes on under the hood, but it's a lot about how to use the product. Um, For example, you might do a demo or you might, you know, put together a little project for the for the consumer, things like that, I would imagine are are very common in that line of work. Yeah, demos, you might do a proof of concept where you actually build a sample application for them um, with some of their data sets, for example. Um, And you can also run a two-day workshop or a a hackathon for the customer as well. So you do need to know the product, you do need to be hands-on, but you may not be you know, hands to keyboard as much as a suite would be obviously like creating the actual product. Um, But it was great for me because I wanted to stay close to the tech and still have that exposure while also building up my client sales experience. That sounds awesome. You really get both the technical side as well as like the interpersonal side. I think that that's probably why technical sales jobs are compensated so well. That's kind of a fairly rare combination at times. Um, it I is am interested. hard to hire for. Yes. Uh, I am interested. How, how did you go from the technical sales to where you are now and what you're doing now? And like, it probably might make sense to also explain more of the specifics of your role uh, as, as we as we get up that up that uh, timeline. Yeah, so very also an unexpected path, I would say. Um, I did sales engineering for a year and a half at Oracle, and that was in the analytics department. Um, and there was cloud involved in that. But it was analytics because that's what my background was from those projects I did in college. 
And I noticed that cloud computing was just exploding at the time in 2015 or so. And all the big providers were hiring a lot of people in those areas for sales engineering along with other related roles. So I decided to start thinking about other teams that I want to transition to. And the cloud computing, sort of cloud database, cloud computing team was starting up uh, the first customer success team that helps customers who already purchased cloud services to implement those services and to onboard those customers. So I pivoted to that team and did that for another year and a half, at which point, you know, Google was also heavily recruiting for their cloud sales engineering teams. So they reached out eventually to hire me. Uh, It wasn't actually a straightforward process because initially I got reached out to for a sales representative position, which is not the path I really wanted to go. But I decided to go through the interview process anyway, just to get that practice in with Google and got the offer and decided to turn it down, which was hard. Um, But three months later, they reached out for a sales engineering position, which um, I ended up interviewing for as well and getting that job. So it all worked out. Um, I did that. And it was great because Google was definitely... um, a dream company of mine at some point, just for the the culture and the innovative approach that they have. So I did that for about a year at Google. And within the first couple of months, I had met a fellow sales engineer who wanted to create videos about our products for fun. And I had always been interested in making videos about tech. And I even remember talking about it with colleagues back at Oracle. And they were like, cool, go do it. And I was like, I don't know anyone that's really doing it about cloud computing, but I'm too scared to do it on my own. So when I met this colleague at Google, it was a really great, um, you know, it was just such a lucky moment because he was excited to do it. He had already purchased, you know, cameras and we were just running around different game rooms and conference rooms and lounges to film our demos and our little interviews. And we would post it on our own YouTube channel, which probably wasn't backed by the company or anything like that, but we just did it anyway. And eventually we met um, my current manager who's in developer relations at Google, which is a part of the engineering department. And they were managing the official Google Cloud Tech YouTube channel. And he said, if you're already creating great content, you might as well just do it with me in a studio and get editors and everything assigned to it. And we thought that's amazing. What a great opportunity. So I started doing videos for that channel. And through that, I got more visibility and got asked to speak at some of our large conferences that are external facing. And when I got the chance to interview, uh, I was doing broadcast for the entire live stream of our conference. I interviewed the director of developer relations and he said, Hey, that person you've been working with Colt is starting his own team for video kind of content creators for developer, um, products at Google. Do you want to join that team? So I ended up joining the first team that was focused on content creation for developers and, I've been doing that for over four years now. And that's kind of what led to me doing this full time as the head of developer engagement, which involves creating inspirational and educational content for developers in the context of what they care about. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been really, it's a, it's been a wild ride, but very enjoyable. That That is so cool. You know, something that from that story you just told really jumps out at me is there's both a conscious and an unconscious sort of career journey that you have. So for example, you you first turned down Google for a role that wouldn't quite be right. But then when you got the role that that was a really good fit, it turned into this thing that you probably couldn't have expected when you were going in. And I think that there's something inherently really powerful about that is that there are certain decisions that we have autonomy over that we can make that influence what we do. And there are other things where 
they just sort of line up based on the work that we're currently doing and it just transforms into into something that's you know hopefully really beneficial to us i'm interested if you could walk me through actually the your thought process for turning google down the first time obviously you'd mentioned how important that was to you i'm interested into like what factors you evaluated and how you approach that because i know that probably wasn't something that was easy to do Oh, no, it definitely was not. And I would say I got a range of responses about it from like my parents and others. Um, You know, of course, I had them weigh in because it was such a great opportunity to join a company that I had been vying for for a while. But knowing that it was my it was going to set me down a path that I didn't necessarily want to head towards was one aspect. It wasn't my first job in tech. And so I think it would be different if I was just getting started in my career. At that point, I had already gotten about three years of experience. And I knew that I liked working on the tech uh, along with clients. Um, and so that was one big factor. The other factor, of course, was pay. Um, I think they were offering something similar to what I was making. And so for me, I was like, well, if it's a job I don't really want and it's also and the pay isn't as compelling, then maybe those things don't add up as the right opportunity at this time. An additional thing is that I knew they were hiring for sales engineers and they just happened to... Uh, they had reached out originally for a sales engineer position, and then they decided that that wasn't available anymore. And then I got reached out to f- for the sales rep position. So I kind of knew that there might be that sales engineering position on the table in the future, but you know who knows, right? So it was definitely uh, risks that I took to turn it down. But ultimately, it worked out because I let them know that I was more interested in the sales engineer position, and I made that well known by communicating that with them. I, I love that concept that you describe of calculated risk. I think a lot of people, they feel like, oh, I have this one shot with this company. And then if I don't get it, it's all over. And that is simply not the case. I know many people, I know someone, I think they applied to a data scientist position at LinkedIn five times before they landed the job, right? And I think they went through the interview process at least three or four times. And so the idea that it's, you know, you miss this, you have this one shot and you miss it just simply isn't the case. And I think that the way you approach that was such a very logical and analytical way that a lot of people, I think a lot of people generally get a little too emotionally invested in these big job decisions because they're important, right? Yeah. Especially early on in your career that like I was, I would say that there were other folks that I talked to who said, Google is not the only good company. Like you can't just put so much value in this one opportunity because there will be something down the road. Like if you don't get it, it's okay. And that was something I needed to tell myself, but it was difficult. Um, but I'm really glad that I followed my intuition uh, and said no. And, you know, something else came along down the road. And if it wasn't Google, I'm sure I would have been fine. You know, it's just the lesson I learned from that whole experience is that it does take experience to get to the place that you want to be. And it just takes time. You know, I, I had applied to Google a few times before that in school and the first couple of years I was at Oracle and didn't get any of those calls back. So, you know, after three years of experience and pivoting to cloud, things started coming, right? So I think you just need to work towards a goal and know that the more experience you get, you'll eventually, um, you know, gravitate yourself towards those opportunities. Well, I, I think that there's a parallel between that and the job market, but also in the content space and in, in the workspace with what you're doing. Can you tell me about, for example, what it was like to make that progress from, for example, making your first video, what was the feeling like to, to when you were asked to do that 
essentially professionally, what was that transition like? Did you have to learn a bunch of new skills? What, you know, was there a lot of ambiguity? Were, were you, was there trepidation? Was there excitement? What, what was that process like? Yeah, well, it's, it's funny because when I first started doing it, it was more for fun and there weren't really any guardrails. It was more just, okay, we're going to talk about technology. We're going to interview folks and we're going to do demos for fun. And so I was just collaborating with that person I met and we were just throwing things and seeing what stuck to the wall. So it was more exciting at that time because we knew that there wasn't anything being measured of us. We did try to position our work in Google terms and showcase that we had started a channel and kind of use it for our performance ratings and whatnot. But like whether that worked or not is kind of, it wasn't something we were banking on. But for the most part, we're doing it for fun. Now, when we transitioned into doing it officially for the studio, then obviously we needed to be more structured. We had to start learning storytelling. And it wasn't until I actually transitioned fully into that team that I really had to double down on learning structure, um, a narrative across content pieces and how that adds up over a season of videos. I had to work with product managers, engineering, make sure that their needs were being met in my storylines as well, and also get buy-in from executive leaders. Um, you know, all those things I learned over the span of two plus years being on the team officially. But I would say that it was uh, a progress, a progression. And I did face a lot of imposter syndrome uh, for many reasons going into that type of role. Um, <clears throat> but it's something that I learned on my own as well as got guidance from my my manager. And once I started taking it and running with it, I was able to actually define my own strategy and my own storytelling, my own voice, and how I want to creatively tell these stories. So you, you mentioned imposter syndrome in there. And it seems like that's a pretty common theme with pretty much anyone moving into new positions, working in domains they weren't necessarily familiar with to begin with. How did you approach that? And what did you feel? What was you know, what was the, was there anything that really helped? Was there anything that made it worse? What, what were the, what was the overall sentiment around that scenario and how did you manage it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to preface by saying that not only was I transitioning into a team where I got to work on content creation, which was exciting, but I was also transitioning from the business side of the company over to the engineering and tech side of the company. So that in itself was extremely daunting to me. And I almost didn't take the opportunity because of that. Luckily, my manager talked me into it and said, Hey, you know, you can learn more technical skills over time. What you can't learn is the excitement to create content and to be communicative and focus on those skills. That's something that, you know, I'm really looking for in, in our initial team. And so that gave me the confidence to at least join the team. But once I got there, of course, it was an uphill battle of gaining credibility in a very technical area of the business when I didn't have those core skills going into it. Most people had already been software engineers for a previous career, and they just transitioned to developer relations to be more external facing with the community. So for me, it was like, okay, who's this person coming over from the sales side and acting like they belong, right? And I'm not saying it was that hostile of an environment. It was probably more self-imposed, if anything, in my mind. But I definitely felt like I had something to prove. Um, that being said, this happened when I transitioned into tech. You know, when I first got out of college, it happened when I transitioned into cloud computing. It happens every time when I feel like I'm not 100% ready, but I'm also looking for growth. And it became a pattern. I mean, I think, I think for anyone, it's a pattern when you transition into an unfamiliar area of work. Um, and to be honest, you know, I, I've learned over time that, you know, you may not feel 100% ready, but 
If you were, then you probably wouldn't even be going for that opportunity in the first place. Like it is uh, happening by design that you're you're not feeling 100% ready. And you also have to remember that the people around you have been doing it for years and everybody was once a beginner. Every expert is once a beginner, but it is something that's very difficult to remember when you're surrounded by experts. Um, I would say that something that helped me was being patient with myself and also understanding that these core emotions that, you know, tell us what we want and what we need are actually blocked by these inhibitory emotions that are like the guilt, the shame, the comparison traps that you have. So once you kind of disconnect those two things and understand that you're reacting to the situation and you're using procrastination or perfectionism or comparisons to deal with those, um, you know, inhibitory emotions, um, you'll be able to better, you know, cope with imposter syndrome and understand that this is just your initial response. When in reality, you just need to understand that things take time, that, you know, you should focus more on iterative steps as opposed to large goals over time. Um, And that is continuously embedded into me now, because I've gone through the process like twice now, when I first got into tech, and then when I transitioned into Google, and you know, DevRel as a result. I think that understanding what you feel and what your body's signaling is so important and sort of reframing these conversations, just like you said that you have with yourself. One of my favorite examples is that, you know, excitement and fear, or not fear, uh, anxiety are physiologically identical in the body, right? It's how we label them that gives us a bad feeling versus a good feeling. And you know, if, if we're telling ourselves that when we're nervous or when we're anxious, that we're excited about something, you know, you go up to talk and you're saying, I'm excited rather than I'm anxious about this talk Yeah. over time that, that, that like sort of reprograms how we, we feel about the exact same physiological sensation that we have. And I view imposter syndrome in the same way is that if we're feeling this imposter syndrome, like we're not adequate, like we are, uh, unprepared or that we're in a situation where, where, we might not be able to succeed because we're out of our depth. That's the exact same thing. A a different way to frame that is that you're challenging yourself adequately to be able to push yourself to grow. And I think for me, that was one of the biggest things is that that feeling, as as I'm sure you know, you know, you described how cyclically it happens when you're in this, in this, uh, in these growing parts of your career. Um, It doesn't, it never goes away, but the way that we approach it and the way we think about it, can absolutely change and what it means to us can change. And that to me is like, I relish this. I actually like this when this happens because it means that I'm trying to improve myself and I'm, I'm on the the road to making progress. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is that we overestimate what we can do in one year and we underestimate what we can do in 10 years. So if you look back on yourself 10 years ago and what you've done since, you'll probably be extremely impressed by the amount of things that you've done, the amount of personal and professional growth you've had. And I think that for me, I catch myself moving goalposts for myself because I am an ambitious person. But what I try to do now is not devalue where the goalposts were before or fear that the next challenge is going to happen just because I already achieved the last one. Um, and we are in a culture now where you know we tend to compare ourselves because we see everyone's highlight reels. I think it's important to put that in the context of what you've already achieved to this point today. I, I love that so much. I, I would even argue that in this world as it is today, where technology and, and careers move way faster, it's almost like you can do you do you can do a lot more in in two to five years than you expect, but in like three to six months, it's 
you're going to overestimate your your capacity and your capabilities. And, you know, I've seen that in my own life is that, you know, in content creation, any of these things, I was astounded at the progress that I made if I look back. And and we don't remind ourselves enough either of like how far you've come. We get so wrapped up in comparing ourselves to other what we're doing, what are, you know, others and what we're doing now. We forget that like, oh, you know, we've been able to to move pretty far. We've been able to go from, for example, like a, a college student to having your first job to getting promoted to doing all these things. And it all just seems normal, like it's not a big deal if you're in the moment. But if you go back and you look at the body of work that you've done, it's often pretty impressive. It's like, oh, I actually did that. I've completed that. I've, you know, people might not look at it as a big deal, but it's like, oh, I graduated from college. I took all these classes. If I were to go and take a college class now, I don't know how well I'd be able to do just based on my attention span and those types of things. And it's like, oh, I sat through a lot of that and I was able to do it and, and succeed. And so yeah. I, I think, you know, part of getting through imposter syndrome also is celebrating how far we've come because it's nice to have the reminder that we can do things. We have aptitude uh, and it's very easy to lose sight of that. Yeah. If you want a reminder, just watch your old videos or look at old emails you've done. Like you'd be like, whoa, for me at least, you know, I... I've improved so much because people always ask me, how do you do so well in videos and your podcast? Do you, are you just born with it? And I'm like, I mean, there might be a little bit of that, but to be honest, no, I mean, this takes practice and I just got better at it over time. I used to be so scared of doing the GCP podcast because I was like, how am I going to know anything about everything in the product portfolio? And people now are like, how, how do you keep up with it all? And I'm like, I don't know, I guess because every week I have to talk about something different. It helps me stay on top of things as a result. And I get to interact with all the product teams. And so I just have gotten better at speaking to a range of topics and how they all connect. Yeah, I, I think that people discount. I mean, between you and I, we probably have, you know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of hours of just talking into a microphone or talking into a camera or watching ourselves talking to a camera and, or listening to ourselves over, over a, a, a microphone or some different medium. And without a doubt, those are reps that help us to improve and be better at the, the, the spoken medium, be better at conversationalists, helping to move along a conversation or adding dialogue or whatever it might be. And the other kind of beautiful part about that is that it's focused effort we're trying to do our best. We're trying to improve ourselves. It's not like we're recording ourselves talking on the phone or sitting on the couch. It's, it's an actively turned on skill progression. And I'm a firm believer that if anyone is dedicating time to that, I mean, how many people realistically are dedicating the amount of time that we are to a spoken word or to thinking about our speech patterns, trying to remove filler words, trying to be more clear and maybe less verbose, which is something I'm still working on. <laughs> uh, but, but, <laughs> it's, but it's very few and far between. No wonder there's a difference in how, at least you talk. I, I still have some, some major issues, but I'm working through it. <laughs> We're all working through our own little goals. Yeah. Well, amazing. So, you know, something that actually I'm very curious about, you mentioned picking up new knowledge, understanding how to get Maybe it's the respect of peers when you're coming into a new domain, especially if you're coming from a non-technical domain. I think a lot of people who are entering the field have a lot of concerns about that. How do I be? How do I get people to take me seriously when I don't have this vast technical background that that other people do? How, how do you approach that? What are some of the things that you can do to 
build credibility as you go. Yeah. So this is something that I learned through experience and my manager, I've been lucky enough, has been absolutely fantastic in, in not only just guiding me, but also in, instilling the right principles into how I approach productivity and work. First of all, our team was very different than the traditional DevRel team because we weren't going out and just doing talks around the world and, and interacting with community on a one-on-one basis. It was more like scalable work online. We wanted to create technical videos, podcasts, blogs, and, and really build that up into what it is, the machine that our team is now, right? And so initially, of course, people have raised their eyebrows. Like, is this technical enough? Is this work really respected in the tech community? And we just kept focusing on the work itself and just continuing to sharpen our skills and build our craft. And he instilled this really interesting principle called the first pancake principle, which basically explains that, look, when you create your first pancake, usually the griddle's too hot, you forget to flip it, and it's burnt on one side. But that doesn't stop you from creating more and more pancakes until you get the hang of it and you can make perfect bomb pancakes every time for your friends. Um, and so it's kind of the same thing, like repeated fail- failures lead to success. I avoid putting too much pressure on single successes or big wins because then those failures turn into this massive liability and we try to avoid it at all costs. And you start to, um, you know, get analysis paralysis and you start over planning instead of just pushing out the work and improving over time. And I think there's actually a really good story about a teacher who actually split their pottery class um, or their ceramics class into two different groups. I think a photography teacher has done the same. One side of the class was focused on um, you know, quality of the piece, and they had to submit uh, the highest quality piece at the end of the the semester. Whereas the other side of the class was grouped to focus more on quantity, just push out as many ceramics pieces as possible and submit them. And you would expect that the quality group would do better and submit this beautiful artwork, and it'd be just perfection. But in reality, it was actually the quantity group that ended up having better pieces by the end of the semester. Um, and the reason is because you know, knowing that they had to make so many pieces kind of took off that executional pressure off of them. If one piece was bad, it was a big deal. They just move forward and they create another one. Whereas the other one, you know, really put a lot of pressure onto perfecting every single aspect of that piece to a point where, you know, they didn't necessarily um, move forward or they didn't finish the piece um, or they focused too much on one part of the piece and not the overall like picture of it. And the most important part is it just wasn't iterative. Um, So it may not have been the best piece overall if they had just practiced more and more times. So I found that just continuing to focus on small wins and pushing out uh, pieces of content or work really worked well in my favor because it also helped me fine tune my own style. Um, I would also say that it also allowed me to, um, you know, get better over time, over progression uh, and and also learn as a result. I was able to learn new concepts about our products in all of the different areas and create pieces of content about that and build relationships with those stakeholders as well. I I love that story so much as well. I think to me, reps and feedback are so valuable. It seems like your team has a very good understanding of, you know, what is good enough? Sometimes we set our our threshold for good enough too high. uh, And that means that we're not learning as much as we could along the way. I think that especially for people that have, there's essentially no downside if you're producing a YouTube video and no one's watching it, right? You can produce a ton of content. You can put a lot of things out there. You can get all these reps, you can improve. 
And by the time people actually start to watch it, if you really want to, you can delete all your old stuff. And I think yeah. that, that that's that's something, I mean, I, I would imagine there are stakes in, in your work, but understanding the threshold for what good enough is versus what even too good might be. Because if you're producing things that are taking a disproportionate, disproportionate amount of time versus the value that they're providing, it, the return on investment isn't isn't necessarily high enough. Like how much better does color grading a video and spending three hours on that make your video in terms of the value and the content compared to just getting it out with basic color correction? I mean, there's things like yeah. that where it's like there's, there's a trade-off between your time and your effort. Uh, and yeah, I, I really I do that- like that. Go ahead. I was going to say, I call that the the point of diminishing return. And that's something that my, even my partner has mentioned like, oh, you're, you're actually really good at that. Cause he tends to perfect everything more than I do in his work. And our style of work is totally different. He's actually a data scientist at Airbnb working in fraud. So, you know, like accuracy is important, but he also does tend to really go above and beyond for most of his projects. And for me, I'm like about shipping fast, but my style of work may not need that additional layer of perfection, like you said. Um, and so, you know, I think, but I think everyone can find that balance in their work, right? Like you decide the variables that matter that should not be overlooked, but then decide like, is the extra, you know, week of work for this important or is it more important to get the feedback? And that's actually a key concept in my work as well as we work with stakeholders all the time to create content. And it's more important for us to, you know, put together the the script and the basic idea behind it and get that initial feedback because they're probably going to take a red pen to it anyway. Um, and so, you know, don't spend too much time getting that first thing out the door when this could be more of a collaborative effort and then you together work towards the end result. Um, so that's been how I've been able to achieve this uh, almost like a rhythm over time of, of how I'd like to work. That's, that's awesome. And I, I think, it, you know, it seems like there's also tiers to this. So it's not like your first pass goes public facing right away, right? You can still get feedback. You can still produce a product that goes internal and gets feedback and then goes through these different tiers. For example, I'll write a script. I'll send it to some friends and get feedback. Based on that, I'll make a really rough draft of a video, send it for more feedback. Then I'll go through another level and say, okay, this is good enough to ship. So it's not like... You're hedging yourself in some sense from downside risk by letting people see it, but you're outsourcing a lot of the the work that you'd be doing through this iterative process. And I think people are like, oh, they're just, you know, they're sending stuff out willy nilly. They're just getting it out there, whatever it might be. It's like, no, we're we're using our time very efficiently in the sense that it's not going to have blatant gratuitous errors although i have some spelling errors in a couple of my videos that i'm not super proud of but um <laughs> but the idea is that there are there's like these there's levels to this and finding that right balance i think as you described is it's something you develop and cultivate over time that that sense of when it when it is good enough um you know and and it's also based on feedback i realized in a lot of my videos when i do tut- tutorial style videos people prefer that i keep mistakes and stuff in there like, oh, this is real data science. This is how they'd mm-hmm. approach it. And, you know, that saves me time. I don't have to edit that out, which is which is a very different phenomenon as well. Yeah, it's like that authenticity, right? And people appreciate that. And also, I think there is uh, more tolerance for that. And people are more forgiving, depending on the platform that you're using. But I absolutely agree that, you know, people want the real you and your experience and how you learned. Um, and they know that, you know, you're being honest about it. Um, but, you know, depending on the type of work, if I'm working with a product team that really wants a really 
well-polished video, then that's different than me doing a live stream or something where I'm walking through a demo. Yeah. I mean, I think one last thing I definitely want to add because I just remembered it. I was like fighting to remember it for the last five minutes uh, is that, you know, oh, I forgot it again. It's okay. Um, <laughs> It'll come back. Uh, so I, I do have a, maybe like a broader question of when you're creating these opportunities, when this is all happening, it all is clearly happening very fast. We talked about retrospect a little bit a second ago. I, I'm interested in, you know, obviously you're not focusing too much pressure on each individual win, but on the other hand, what is maybe the biggest win that you feel like you've had that was meaningful to you throughout your career so far? Oh, that's such a well, like I mean, problem. I'm talking one. in front of someone, something like that. Yeah, I feel like every year I've been able to hit really cool milestones and I don't even realize it until I look back at it. But I would say one of the interesting projects I worked on was being able to visit a Google data center and tour it. And that was just a great experience because, you know, who gets to go to these things? But it was also just a huge undertaking to be able to get the approvals to go and write this fantastic story um, about the physical layers of security, work with amazing people on that team. And then we ended up winning a Webby Award for that. So that was like a external to Google media and online advertising kind of um, award. Um, and, and it got, I think, over 6 million views on, on YouTube so far. So that was just a fantastic win there. Um, but more recently, I would say just like on a personal note, I recently got back from Europe where I just decided to personally challenge myself to do live talks in a new region on a topic that you know I had to put together. Um, I was asked to keynote at a couple conferences, one of them being DevFest in Nantes, France, and another one being a Google Cloud Developer Day conference in London at Wembley Stadium. And so I was already nervous to go because I knew I had to put together the entire talk, but I also was doing it in front of these audiences that, you know, I hadn't been in front of yet. I had spoken at Next at, you know, in San Francisco, but this was traveling far for it. And so, yeah, I decided to leverage the work I had already done with data center work both for that data center video, along with the video series I did about other concepts at data centers, and tried to, to put together a talk on those concepts and how they translated to cloud computing and what developers interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. And it turns out that it was super stressful leading up to it. It was that nervous excitement. Um, but the whole thing was really well-received. People absolutely loved it. Um, and that was just a big personal win to me because even if, if I don't get much, um, you know, internal or Google recognition for it or anything like just on a personal level, I challenged myself and it was, it was a big success. That's amazing. I, I feel like from the people I've talked to and myself included, the things that are most meaningful are not the accolades. They're not necessarily the, the accomplishment of doing something. It's the individual journey that we took to get there. So I, you know, you look back and you're like, yes, I accomplished this. But the challenge was, it's like this intrinsic thing where I was trying to better myself. I was trying to pursue this rather than like, oh, I got this check in the mail for X, Y, Z because I did something. That That's never the gratification. The gratification is that you can take something home from it. You can take home that I did this thing. I have this added confidence. I have the ability to know that I can do something like that in the future rather than just I talked at this conference and I can put that on my resume now. There's something very beautiful about 
you know, amassing the skills because of an action or, or because of a, a goal you set or because of a, an event that you, uh, you know, partook in. And to me, that's something that I think everyone can evaluate and, and take things on. It's something that one of the most things I'm most proud of is, you know, I, I, I did my master's in computer science and I didn't have any technical background before that. So I went in, I took a crash course on all the basics. I went through and, you know, it took me two, three years. But after that, I realized that, wow, at the time, computer science was like, oh, this is the hardest thing I could possibly study. After that, I was like, wow, if I could tackle that challenge and and consume that information and understand it and perform well, what else could I do? You know, what else am I capable of if I can do that? And I think continually building that repertoire of what else could I do after you've accomplished the things that that you thought were challenging or or even impossible, you know, years before that is one of the most beautiful gifts that you can give yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's not saying it's a journey, not the destination, which is kind of cliche, but it's true. Um, and I think everyone can apply that to their lives in different ways. But I mean, even, you know, for that example, I gave about the Europe talk, it was leading up to it was exciting and stressful. But the people I met and the support I got, like on the day of the event with my friend and the crowd cheering for me, like those are the memories I'm going to have right? And I'm going to walk away with those. And that's, I just absolutely loved all of that. And just being on stage and being like confident the second time around into the talk went even better than the first, right? And then the same thing with your YouTube channel. Like, I think a lot of people are like, oh, should I, should I get started in YouTube? Like, it's such a daunting thing. But I realized like, if you don't like the act of making videos, then why do it? Like, if you just want to be big on YouTube, you really have to enjoy the act of putting out videos and content every single week or else you're, you're not going to get through those difficult times. Right. Um, I think this is also a good example of that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's even more nuanced where it's like, what part of the video do you like making? So I like the storytelling. I actually like being on camera, but I don't like the editing. Right. And now I have an editor. I've outsourced that. So I get to do more of exactly what I like to do. I have other friends where their favorite part is the actual editing itself. And it's like, well, you know, like, how do you approach that? Like, how do you make the other parts that aren't as fun, even though you enjoy the whole process, more fun and more accessible to you? And there's this sort of, uh, you know, pattern and identifying in yourself what, what you like and what you don't like and how that relates to the domain that you're in. Um, I also I saw this beautiful graph on for anyone that's having trepidation about getting started on something. like the the bottom graph is just like a a flat line of if you started when you felt ready because you essentially never start right there's very few things that that we're truly ready for that we start whether it's an entrepreneurial endeavor a a job search whatever it might be and then there's a graph above if it's like if you started before you felt ready and it's like a steadily progressing upward line and to me that's very true it's like there's never a right time to start these things. There's always going to be some doubt or some fear and you just have to bite the bullet at some point. And if you're not, if you're even less ready than you think you are, then you have more of an opportunity to learn because you're getting thrown into the fire a little bit. Yeah. And actually, I don't know if you follow Adam Grant. He's that organizational psychologist. That's pretty big. I love his stuff. Um, Yeah. So he has, he tweeted out this a, a few months ago that I saved, but he basically said, many people procrastinate because they're waiting for their motivation to rise. They forget that getting started is what leads to their motivation to rise. Passion is not a prerequisite for progress. It's often the result of progress. Wholeheartedly agree with that. Passion doesn't necessarily have to exist 
to get started in something, it's often something that emerges with increased effort. And that's 100% true for me and my work in DevRel and content creation and in cloud computing. Like, I didn't even know what that entailed when I first started. But over time, I was like, hey, this is actually not too bad. I, I enjoy it. I'm getting good results from it and recognition. And it seems like something I should keep do- doing. But this type of role didn't even exist, right, before I joined this team. So. Yeah. Well, to, to piggyback on the Adam Grant thing, one uh, something that I've implemented and a lot of people I know use, it's the 10-minute rule. So basically, no excuses. You take 10, min- 10 minutes and you get started. If you don't feel like you have motivation by the end of the 10 minutes, you stop. But usually, more often than not, once you get going, you're 10 minutes of dedicated focus into something, that's enough to make you want to continue till you finish the actual project you're working on. Because you've invested mm-hmm. that time. You're like fully committed and you've started, hopefully had enough small wins to actually build that motivation itself. And I mean, to me, that that little trick has been a complete game changer. Wow. Yeah. I, I need to do that because I'm also trying to start a newsletter as well. And I'm still facing the same problems that I'm telling people, you know, how to avoid. You know, I'm not going to lie. When you start a new thing because you want to achieve like new progress and focus areas. And so I'm just trying to start a newsletter and I need to apply that 10 minute rule because, you know, I, I, I don't start and then I beat myself up for not starting. Right. But when you start with just 10 minutes, then it's just so much easier to keep building off of that, I think. Yeah, oh, that that's super. I have a, one of those Pomodoro clocks where you just like turn oh, yeah. it and it starts mm-hmm. the timer. And I did this very weird thing in grad school where I would classically condition myself. So I would every time I would study, I'd put earplugs in like not music, nothing like old school earplugs. And then when I'd stop studying, I'd take them out. So every time I like put earplugs in, I knew it was time to study. Um <laughs> And I eventually started using earplugs for like going to sleep and stuff. So my conditioning was all messed up. But now <laughs> I've been using like... just sleep instead of study. <laughs> exactly. The the like, the <laughs> the turning of the clock. When I turn it on, I know it's like my trigger to start focusing. Um, and I, I find that that, you know, those little things like, you know, we're, we're, we're completely programmable as well. And we can use <laughs> our programming to... to help get us to get started or do any of those types of things. Um, yeah. Maybe a little mad scientist in myself there. We're not so different than like mice that, you know, experiments are run over to see if conditioning works. I feel like you could kind of do it on yourself. And to be honest, I've tried Pomodoro clocks before and it didn't work for me. Like I, I did it for a week and then, you know, started straying from it. So I think you just need to figure out a tactic that works for you. Um, and there are obviously a ton of books and ideas online for that. Exactly. Amazing. So, you know, changing gears just a little bit here, I find that a lot of your success early on in your career, probably even to this point, has been about taking on new work, finding opportunities and saying yes to things. I think we'll both agree at a certain point, your success is actually driven more by saying no to things and saying yes to fewer things as as you go along. How do you make that transition? You know, how do you not go and speak at every conference, for example, or how, how do you how do you choose and delineate how to allocate your time as your time gets more valuable and more people want a piece of it? Yes, I would say that that transition started happening more recently. Um, you know, I get asked to do a lot of talks and I did the Europe one because I felt that I wanted to challenge myself, but I also wanted to um, achieve their goals and give back in that way. But again, it's always a discussion with yourself about what's going on in the rest of your life. Do you have the bandwidth to take that on? Does it 
align with your personal vision for yourself and what you're trying to work towards. Um, I also really love this concept of selfish altruism, which is another one that my manager had kind of taught us about. But, you know, you can seek out opportunities and activities that produce the most net good for you and also produce net good for those around you as well. And when you can execute on these projects in this vein, then, you know, magic will happen. You'll see that when you're able to achieve your goals and others' goals, your career will take a massive leap forward. You know, your impact and your influence will grow as well. And you'll find yourself, you know, in the center of a network of friends who really praise your work and and want to give back to you too. So I think it's a good way to just help you decide, like, is this producing net good for me and for those people? And maybe the conversation is a little more skewed. You need to focus on what is net good for you. What is net good for you? You know, is what else is happening in your life? Do you have family things to take care of? Work and, and personal lives, I don't see them as separate. I think I see that all as your life, right? And they both need to balance each other out. And I think that's something you need to decide for yourself. But when you can also help other people in a positive way, then I think those are definitely the ones that you want to say yes to. You want to say no to the ones that aren't in your wheelhouse first and foremost. Don't contribute to your overall goal for the next, let's say, five years. Um, And the ones that are taking time away from you and your family or projects outside of work, whatever that may be. So it seems like you kind of start more towards the end. Obviously, there are some goals that you can't set because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. But if you have sort of a a guiding light, a place you know where you want to go, it's easier to see how every individual activity, if if and how that lines up with that. Am I am I kind of getting that right? Yeah, I would say so. I would say, yeah, like if you do have an overall goal, start with that. If it is on a project by project basis, then yeah, think about um, those individual characteristics that matter to you and whether that fits into it. Um, and for me, I don't have a one size fits all approach to anything that comes my way. I take it on a case by case basis. And at times I have time for another mentee at times I don't, at times I do want to focus on doing a talk. Other times I'm like, I just, I don't, I I don't have the bandwidth to, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, it's just a constant kind of calculation, but do understand that if you are being asked to do things, it is absolutely a good thing that people want your time. You know, you are a, a valuable asset to them as well. And so just manage yourself as if it were a business that you're running and, you know, what kind of what kind of business do you want to run and what kind of clientele do you want to continue to serve um, to achieve your mission? That does raise a really interesting question. So what business would you try to run and what clientele would you try to serve to achieve your mission? <laughs> right now, it seems like I'm doing a lot of education and empowerment for other people. Um I don't know if that would be like a business or a nonprofit or whatever, but I do feel like I love, you know, sharing my technical journey and the concepts that I'm learning with other people. And I think that is perfect, like selfish altruism, because it positions me in um, a, as a valuable asset and a leader in this space, in the tech space, but it also helps to bring other people up around the world who maybe don't have as much access to the resources I do to break into tech and to learn these concepts. And so that's kind of my goal is like, how do I continue to push myself forward in this in this overall like uh, corporate environment while also empowering other people? Because if and when I get to the top, if I'm not carrying other people up with me, then it's going to be pretty lonely up there. Um, so I always kind of say that because I think it's important, especially for other women in tech. 
Amazing. Well, so, you know, in your, in your ascent, as, as you think about your own story and the stories you tell, I'm interested in the actual value of stories themselves. I mean, as someone who creates content in that domain, you know, what does story mean to you? What is a good story? How do you tell it in a space that is, I think, difficult to tell stories in? You would think it's difficult. I mean, it is, I would say, but I think that that concept is getting thrown out the door a bit because stories exist all around us. And one of the things that we've learned over time is that what Disney does so well is create stories that really tug at our heartstrings and um, inspire us. But I think the same principles can apply to anything, whatever your message may be, especially even in tech. You know, a story can exist by you building trust, sort of this like gradual ascent in the storyline to inspiring action where it kind of tapers off. Um, and so I think even in tech storytelling, you can introduce, you know, where you're at in your learning journey, traditional pain points, the struggles that you faced, and then kind of introduce the problem description for developers or whoever audience, and then you introduce the solution at that point. So I might introduce Google Cloud products at that point, or maybe a tool that I use that helped me break through that frustration. Um, and then you talk about the results and you kind of inspire the audience to take matters into their own hands and either follow your footsteps or talk about some caveats where things don't necessarily always apply. So I think storytelling in the same way that Disney does it can be applied to anything in your life. And that's what I do time and time again with my content for Google Cloud. And it just works like a charm in building trust and not even just that, like conveying very clear messaging for people. So if I recall correctly, the the Disney storytelling arc effectively is that someone's going on something happens to them that's outside of their control. They have to go on this journey. And in, over the course of this journey, they face conflict, but they also learn something about themselves. And at the end, they go back to where they were, except they have this new lesson effectively. I think that that's like the, the basic yeah. arc of a Disney story. I find it personally very challenging to do that without individual personal like character growth. Like something mm -hmm. that makes a really good story is people. And a lot of the time we're talking about things that are, are not people. Is the answer to just talk about people more or can we personify technology? Can we make interesting stories or is there an alternative approach to uh, telling a technology story rather than a, a human centered story? So it's it's an option purple. for sure. I've tried to do it in different contexts content pieces as well, where I say like, hey, let's follow the development team from this gaming company called Critter Junction, which was supposed to be like a little parody of Animal Crossing. Um, and then we kind of tell the story through that lens. Um, but you know, you don't have to do that. You can tell it from your personal story, obviously, if you went through it. Um, or you can do something called a five point argument model, which is very similar, but doesn't necessarily involve personification. Um, it just kind of says introduce the problem, talk about, you know, it describe the problem, then introduce the solution at that point, whatever proposed argument you're trying to make. And you talk about the results or go through a demo or a product walkthrough, and then you can talk about a little bit of caveats and then the conclusion and call to action from there. So it's just a structure that works really well if you're wondering where to get started in developing your, your, your content. So one last question about storytelling. I find that storytelling directly conflicts with business communication. So the way that most people are interested in hearing, you know, executable information is they want the end first and then maybe some details. 
right? If you're a good business communicator, you're using the bottom line upfront approach. Um, with story, we need context. We need time effectively to be able to get from the beginning to the end. Do you see that conflict personally? And is that something that um, causes friction or is there a way to get around that? That's actually a great point. I agree with that. I think in business communication, they often do want the bottom line first. And then you say, I'm going to go through A, B, and C. And here's my evidence for A, B, and C. Um, But that's a part of understanding your audience. So if I'm creating YouTube videos, you know, my audience is not business executives that are just trying to get to the point quickly. They do want to be inspired. They do want that thought leadership. And so stories, I think, make sense for that. But if I'm doing a pitch for my team about why we should invest dollars into creating this video, then I usually will get to, you know, kind of the bottom line with a TLDR at the top, like this is what I'm trying to achieve. But I do still tell a story, you know, in the proposal, I'm I'm still including the problem description, the why the video is the solution for it, the how I'm going to measure results and what the call to action for our audience is going to be like, that can still fit into even business communication um, even if the TLDR goal is at the very top of the page. Um, so I don't really see them in conflict. I, I, I actually think that they can work in conjunction with each other, but you just really need to understand what your audience cares about and what the goal is. I I, I really like that. I think that I sometimes try to switch between these things and I get all confused. And sometimes it's about refining how the story is told to to match the audience that is that is all the the kind of secret sauce you really need. I mean, fortunately, I'm not telling too many stories anymore to, you know, to people in like more business scenarios. I, I guess I am in my in my in my work, but um, they're forced to sit there and actually listen to me tell the story, uh, just <laughs> because like you know a lot of my business communications are not formal briefings; they're more um, like phone calls, catching up with with friends or, or things like that. But uh, I think that that's such a, such a powerful point on that front. Um, we're kind of coming to the end here. I do have a, a couple last questions that I think are, are particularly interesting about your story. Uh, you'd mentioned to me that you had a, a history in pageants and that that actually has quite a bit of impact in your life overall and how you approach things. And I'm interested to hear that story. You know, wh- what about those experiences uh, have shaped who you are and maybe how you approach work? Yeah, so I had done a number of pageants in the past. Um, It was never on my radar growing up, but growing up in the Bay Area, I knew that Miss Chinatown was a thing that had been a big tradition for many years. And so when I started working back in the Bay Area after school, I decided to just take my chance and go for it. Uh, It was kind of like a side project for me outside of work. And I absolutely love extracurriculars. So went for it, didn't expect to get anything out of it other than to perform, but I actually ended up winning. Um, And even more unexpected is I got introduced to this really vibrant community of Chinese Americans in the Bay and uh, friends that I made for life. You know, now we plan the pageant every year. We're really active in the community here now. And then I did a couple other pageants after that, one in Hong Kong slash Malaysia, and then another one in Vegas for a, a different one. But I think the key thing that I took away from all this is that I was able to work towards a goal for several months, uh, get out of my comfort zone and perform talents and fun dances and whatnot. um, And then meet people of different backgrounds who are just phenomenal women who are extremely talented and very professionally uh, successful, actually a lot of entrepreneurs and tech um, people as well. And then, you know, 
not just build myself up, but build others up as well. I've been able to um, build a lot of close friendships and guide others who are now doing it. And then it also taught me to remember my community and how important things are in the context of the community that you're a part of. And all of this has funneled into my work because I can present very clearly as I practice on stage. I'm able to understand that we have an, an audience and how important the audience is and how that connects to a broader community, not just talking one to one, but what communities are there, they are part of and how are we contributing to that? Um, and it just has given me this, um, you know, I think platform as well to talk about the things you care about on stage and see what I do at work at Google in the same fashion. Like the platform is YouTube and Google. And what am I going to use that for beyond, you know, personal gain? I think that that's such a, uh, such a beautiful thing that the things that we do outside of our work, I think very few people argue that work is one of the things that largely consumes our lives. It's one of our main priorities is for most people, but the things that we do outside of our work can blend fairly seamlessly and add value to the work that we do. I think something even as simple as like, you know, I don't like to run, but going for a hard run, right? It shows you that you can overcome discomfort. It shows you that you can overcome, um, you know, physical stress. And you take a little bit of that learning that, hey, I can achieve something or I can put work into something and I can, I can, I can, you know, well, anything like, you know, you can st- stand in front of a stage. You could, you can talk very clearly when there's a big bright light shining on you. You can take that confidence that you build there and you can just transpose that into your work mm-hmm. and well, into anything, into your relationships. Maybe you're more confident with your, your partner or you're, you're more confident with, you know, I think an Asian family is talking to your parents. Um, <laughs> like th- those are little things that I think have so much impact and so much crossover that you, you, you maybe could get some of those things at work, but the focus and the sort of like individual encapsulation of those things are a lot easier to get takeaways from than the overarching, like big umbrella of work, right? Like work to me is very open-ended. That's actually one of the things that I really disliked about a lot of my work is that like, there's no necessarily an end goal, right? In individual Mm -hmm. work projects, there can be, but in the overarching scheme of things you're like oh i'm probably going to do this for the next 25 years like it's hard to set very specific things that you want to achieve uh and in things outside of work you have so much more definition of those things you could choose to say hey this is my last pageant i want to make sure that i do xyz things or i'm going to start being involved in the pageants like you have been and make this more impactful in the community or whatever it might be and and i i just really enjoy and i really encourage people to be involved in things other than, than just their work. I mean, uh, I, I like that you said that you really, <laughs> you like being a part of extracurricular. That gave me a good chance. Yeah. And also it, you know, that's something that I might've hidden more in the beginning of my tech career, but over time I realized how important it is for me to be open about all my interests, including pageants, because there are other people, especially women who don't feel like they might have a place in tech or they don't see the pathway so clearly to them. And so if I'm able to you know, show them what's possible and that everybody it can be their full selves and bring their passions and interests outside of work, then yeah, you can be both uh, a performer, a pageant person, a musician. Um, you can be fashionable. That's something that I was afraid to do in engineering. Like, can I dress up in all these like outfits that I love wearing or do I need to dress down in like a zip up? And over time I realized like, yeah, I mean, you have to show that you can be both. You can be all the things and be in tech. 
there's gone are the days of the stereotypical working in your garage and then become a startup founder. Um, you know, having a traditional CS degree, like I had a different CS degree. It's okay. Communication studies. <laughs> so it's possible. Yeah. I, I, I just think that if you, t- if you talk to someone on the street, if you have an interview or you converse with someone, it's the things that make them different. It's the things that make them unique. It's the interesting stories that, you know, for example, uh, obviously you have this background in pageants. Another guest in, in a similar vein, uh, Mikiko Bazili, she makes her own clothes. She's heavily interested in fashion. She's trying to combine AI with fashion, like those types of things. That's what makes you interesting to talk to, right? Your unique experiences, the the things that make you different from the traditional person is what makes these conversations valuable. If every guest I had was like a generic data scientist from XYZ company, I think I would probably be too bored to keep doing the podcast. But even <laughs> those, you know, like those generic data scientists, which I actually think there are very few of, everyone has their own uniqueness, their own stories. They play this weird instrument that's that's passed down by their family or you know, they, they've been working on the side project because they're really bad at dating and they, they need a, a GPT three to respond to messages, <laughs> you know, things like that. Like there, there's these yeah. little things that he gives t- context that gives story. Um, and in my mind, those are the little things that like make human connection even more meaningful is that uh, we get to learn about differences. We get to learn about experiences that we haven't had. And we all get to grow together from from hearing those. Yeah. And we can also create products for those sets of folks who have those combinations of interests. And like you said, AI and fashion is just opening the door to possibilities of creating really um, impactful product areas that don't yet exist. Amazing. So those are those are all my questions. Uh, do you have anything that you want to add? Any final thoughts? Uh, any place where people can learn more about you? Uh, anything you have coming in the pipeline? You've mentioned the newsletter. Uh, definitely would love to hear more about that. Yeah. So first off, I would just say that if you want to connect with me, I love learning about everyone's unconventional paths into tech or what your interests are, because you know that's just part of my my mission here is to connect with the community. So reach out to me at Steph R underscore Wong on Twitter. Um, or, you know, just find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, my website, stephrwong.com, where you can see a bunch of my work. And then the newsletter idea is something that I'm still working on. I'd love to focus it on, you know, learning about my perspective on the tech business industry and, you know, just the future of tech. And so I'm still trying to fine tune that narrative, but I will be sharing that obviously broadly on my social channel. So stay tuned for that. And um, my Twitter is also where I host uh, spaces and, and, you know, various podcasts as well with people in the tech industry. Amazing. Definitely go follow Steph. I'll leave all of her links in the description on both YouTube and on all the main podcasting platforms. Steph, thank you so much again. This was amazing. I'm, I'm super excited we could have you on the show. Me too. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ken's Nearest Neighbors. Many of you have been asking about how you can support the show, and we're extremely grateful for all the engagement so far. The best way that you can show your support is to subscribe to both the Ken's Nearest Neighbors and the Ken's Nearest Neighbors Clips YouTube channels. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Music, giving us a rating and sharing any of the episodes with someone that you believe might find the content useful is also greatly appreciated. The Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast is hosted by me, Ken G, produced by Bobby Hicks, and is edited by Mario Paul and Tony Pelleridi.